Resilient cities are cities that have the ability to absorb, recover and prepare for future shocks. These shocks could be economic, environmental, social, institutional or a combination as demonstrated by COVID-19. Resilient cities promote sustainable development, well-being and inclusive growth and the OECD is investigating how cities can increase their resilience. Today we're doing a deep dive into a topic that is vital to urban resilience, transport. So what makes a resilient transport system? Hi, and welcome to Moonshot City. I'm Preeti Ambani, and I'm here with Juhi Sharif. And together, we're exploring the big questions around what makes a resilient and regenerative city. Today, we're delighted to welcome our guest, Marianne Jang. Marianne has over a decade of international experience in urban policy, governance, and sustainable development. She led the 100 Resilient Cities work on the intersection of transport and land use and urban resilience for cities across the network, where she engaged with global partners and city stakeholders to develop the concept of resilient transport. Marianne led expert workshops to provide recommendations to cities on specific transport and land use problems through a multidisciplinary lens and connected partners and resources to cities in an effort to help cities find innovative solutions to their resilience challenges. Hi, Marianne. Hi, Preeti. Hi, Juhi. So, Marianne, we work together in the sustainability team at the Global Design and Engineering Consultancy, Arab. Tell us a bit more about your journey from sustainability consultant at Arab to where you are today in New York. First of all, thank you very much for having me. And there's definitely a very common thread in terms of the work that I've done over the last um, almost 15 years. And it's been this obsession with cities. I grew up in Hong Kong. I lived in London for almost 10 years and then almost the same time in New York City. So I've only ever lived in, in big cities. And so I've become very obsessed with how to make them better places for everyone to live in. I think what links my experience at Arab with where I am today is that Arab is really the place where, alongside you, Juhi, and others in our team, we first started to think about what makes cities sustainable and how to design sustainable urban development you know, we were there at a time when the UK had announced sort of funding for ecotowns. And there was also, they'd also created the Commission for Architecture and the Built Environment, which was the government's advisor on architecture and urban design and public space. And both those things really were very influential in my thinking about, you know, how, uh, how we could make cities more sustainable places. But what also I felt while I was working at Arab was that, um, there's one thing which is sort of designing the optimal technical solution, but really in practice, when things get delivered on the ground, it's normally budget and the political environment that matter almost more <laughs> than the actual technical solution. And it made me want to learn more about sort of how policy is made, how policies are implemented, you know, and how projects are really delivered in the ground. And that led me to sort of all the other organizations I ended up working with um, at LSE Cities, I did a lot of research into various urban policies, looking at sustainable urban development, but also that promotes sort of economic development. At that point, after I'd worked at LSE Cities, I moved to New York and became a fellow, which is a volunteer basically, at um, New York City Office of Long-Term Planning and Sustainability under Mayor Bloomberg. And there, it was only a year-long fellowship. 
And there it was a real insight into um, how complicated city government can be. And I think New Yorkers would say that New York city government is the most complex place, and I probably would not disagree. <laughs> and after that year-long fellowship, I joined uh, a nonprofit that really that really was setting standards for sustainable urban development globally. The nonprofit is called the Institute for Transportation and Development Policy. So the next step, really naturally, after having been excited about working globally, <laughs> was to try and find an organization that really was working at a global level and had you know, with a mandate to help cities think about, uh, you know, sustainable development, but also climate change adaptation and mitigation. And along came 100 resilient cities. So Marianne, can you tell us more about your time there? I think I was one of the very early uh, hires there. And then after a few years of working on the foundational program, I led their work on resilient transport. It was a really interesting time to be there. I was there for about five or six years. And uh, the program wrapped up last summer. And in the last few years that I was there, we had started to think more about what resilience means in different sectors and not just urban resilience, you know, vis-a-vis cities. Marianne, the OECD says there are four areas which drive urban resilience and which can be measured, the economy, governance, society and the environment. How would you define a resilient city and how would you measure it? I think based on my experience, um, Resilient cities, I think, are ones that are planning for investing in and implementing, you know, policies, programs and initiatives that will address the risks and vulnerabilities that their city faces today and could face in the future, which is not that different to the um, OECD definition. And to me, that means a number of things. It means that the cities are taking the effort to gather knowledge and information about known and maybe even unknown risks and vulnerabilities like natural or man-made disasters or longer-term issues that arise within society like um, homelessness, lack of green space, inequity, for example. It means cities that are engaging with, with their citizenry, different communities and with their regional and national governments and collaborating across agencies and departments to figure out how best to be prepared for these disasters or crises. It means cities that are examining their governance structures and evolving to ensure that they have a governance structure and processes to meet sort of these changing needs. Um, An example of that would be the work that was done at 100 Resilient Cities, which was to help cities establish an office and create a role of a chief resilience officer. Um, And that person in that office was meant to coordinate resilience thinking across the city. And I think the last thing is that cities that are resilient are thinking in a more multidisciplinary and integrated way about policies and projects, initiatives, and thinking about how the investments that they make today can not only prepare them for the next disaster, but also simultaneously deliver uh, multiple benefits to address the city's ongoing issues, which sort of mentioned before, lack of affordable housing or lack of green space, for example, congestion. In terms of how to measure it, there are a number of tools out there, obviously, that cities can use. The one that most obviously springs to mind is one that we used at 100 Resilient Cities that was called the City Resilience Index and has, I think, up to 156 KPIs that a city can use to um, evaluate how well it's performing against uh, certain indicators. And so far, that's, I feel like that's one of the most comprehensive measurement tools that I've seen. 
I think a lot of different sectors and a lot of different experts think about resilience in terms of simply being prepared for, you know, storm surges or heat waves or pandemics. And I'm, I'm not saying that it's not that, but it is <laughs> that. And also thinking about, you know, the long term problems that a city faces on a day to day basis. Hey, Marianne, that was really interesting when you talked about resilience and the different definitions of what resilience could mean to policymakers and decision makers. Could you unpack how a city's definition of resilience could actually matter on how they prepare the city? Yeah, absolutely. So the traditional you know, use of the term resilience started in psychology and I think also in engineering, and it was more about the quality of a system or an object that would be able to simply return to its pre-traumatic state. <laughs> so something that would, when faced with disaster or a crisis, would respond to the crisis and simply return. With this definition of urban resilience that the Rockefeller Foundation um, had been working on for so long, it really built on concepts of cities adapting to climate change, but also rapid urbanization or just the fact of just growing urbanization and globalization. And I think it became clear that that cities also don't have the luxury of just investing in projects that are just going to deliver climate change um, that will just deliver protection against a storm or policies or programs that will just deliver one huge benefit. The idea behind the definition that was developed is that cities have these ongoing problems, which we used to call stresses and, you know, issues like lack of good quality jobs, ongoing social equity issues, lack of affordable housing, congestion. The cities would have those long-term issues always And a resilient city is one that would think in an integrated way about how to prepare the city for these natural disasters that seem to be increasing in frequency and magnitude, and also how to ensure that the solutions that they invest in to address and be prepared for those disasters are also going to benefit the city in the long term and address all the ongoing stresses that the city faces. And that for me was definitely a new definition and also one that I like because I like the thought that a city is uh, is going to try and work across all the problems and try to find an integrated solution that will deliver multiple benefits and really deliver a sort of bang for your you know investment buck. And I think it was definitely an innovative way of thinking. And I still think it's I still think it's a relatively new concept even after five years. And that actually many sectors outside of city and urban resilience still think of resilience as building back the way it was or building back building back infrastructure to be prepared for the next disaster without necessarily thinking about well what other kinds of disasters might occur and what other kind of benefits could you build in thanks so much marianne for unpacking that so marianne can you tell us then what you feel a resilient transport system is yeah it comes down to a number of things so I think cities that want to apply resilience to their transport systems, I think, already understand their transport system as an entire system. They sort of take a systems view. They understand that this transport system is comprised of multiple modes, subway, ferry, car, cable car, you know, cycling, walking, um, and that there's an, multiple networks and assets. So bicycle lanes, high occupancy vehicle lanes, pedestrian only walkways, stations, et cetera, et cetera. The point is to see the entire system as a system that enables mobility and ultimately allows people to get to their destination rather than focusing on the assets themselves, like the how expensive the subway is to run, for example. 
think about resilience in their transport systems also recognize the dependencies between the transport infrastructure and other city systems, such as water, energy, waste, the economy and society, health and education. They understand the risks to the transport system, whether it's natural, like earthquakes or flooding and man-made risks, such as simply aging infrastructure because lack of investment in maintenance. I think that cities also you know, are thinking about how to integrate this awareness to risk into transport planning, into asset management and operations, uh, which means thinking also about emergency preparedness and disaster recovery. And I think the last thing is that cities that think about creating a resilient transport system are in a better position to ensure that when they invest in the next new project or retrofitting an old project, that they will be incorporating solutions that will ensure that cities are better prepared for the risk that they face tomorrow or or down the road. So Marianne, here in New Zealand, Dr. Paul Winton has been working on identifying the most pragmatic path for New Zealand to meet its obligations under a 1.5 climate change scenario. So that's outlined as we've got a zero carbon act of 2019. And his analysis has shown that we've got to reduce our carbon emissions in New Zealand by about 60% from 2020 levels by 2030, which is basically the almost complete decarbonisation of road transport by 2030. And I don't know how much you know about New Zealand or Auckland, but, you know, they, they love their cars and the city has really been designed around cars And then we've got another challenge of, I think there are a lot of different groups and bodies involved in actually managing transport around uh, around our cities. So given the climate challenge and the fact that we're really heavily dependent on cars, where would you suggest that we start considering resilience in our transport? Yeah, and what you describe about Auckland is probably not that dissimilar to many cities around the world, I think. For a lot of cities, I think even starting to conceive of their transport system as one that's a system that's made up of different modes and you know networks, it's still it's still actually a relatively new concept. It's heartening to know that in New Zealand, you know, obviously climate change is uh, such an important issue, um, and surprisingly, for those who aren't transport planners, it's interesting to know that the progressive transport planners' motto is: if you don't build roads, the cars will not come. So building more roads does not solve the congestion problem. Building more roads actually causes more congestion. So well, yeah. it's, it's interesting to say that because um, particularly in this new COVID context, there's a real rush to put in place what we're calling shovel-ready projects mm-hmm. to create employment. And roads is obviously a key consideration. And there's concerns around having high density use of public transport when you've got a pandemic and the potential implications of that. So it's a really interesting time. And I, I do think that cycling is, is a great option for Auckland. And it's something that's absolutely supported by the Auckland Council Chief Sustainability Officer, which is great. So there is a lot of work that Auckland Council has been doing around a climate action framework where more accessible transport is absolutely one of the the key elements that they're looking at. It's just really interesting that you're talking about bringing these different stakeholder groups together and looking at these kind of multiple needs and multiple benefits. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to add to what Juhi said, you know, this whole COVID situation has highlighted another glaring fact is most of our trips or transport needs are basically to shuttle to and fro from work. And the whole remote working scenario has 
suddenly drawn light to the fact that remote working can be done and people are productive and teams are great and there's a trust and if your company has a good culture that can be replicated online and so suddenly we are grappling with now why do we need this extensive traffic at this time and the transport system to support it and the carbon emissions that come along with that. And so I think to your point, looking at the systemic needs of the ecosystem and of our society, yeah, I think there's an opportunity to rethink all of this now. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I have more questions, I think, than answers when it comes to COVID and redefining mobility in cities, you know, at a time when social distancing is is important. Like you say, I I do see that people are very worried about taking public transportation because, you know, you don't want to be in an indoor space uh, in proximity to other people. Uh, your point about remote working is definitely, you know, also a question mark about the need for commuting. And if there's reduced need for commuting, that also means potentially reduced need for public transport. There's also issues around, you know, if there are going to be more deliveries, if people are going to choose to uh, not go to shops as often and get things delivered, what does that mean for road space and how that impacts our use of roads? There's also going to be less international travel and probably less tourists in many cities. Um, and I think for a lot of cities, tourism is, is a big impact on the economy. But also uh, tourism, I feel like there's a lot of spaces that are designed for tourists in, in a lot of cities. And I don't know how those will get impacted. But the other thoughts I have about transport is that, especially in the U.S., uh, where, you know, and actually I would probably say in most of the major large cities, it's usually the people who are the most vulnerable with the lowest income who rely the most on public transport because they can't afford a car. So especially in the U.S., there's a lot of conversation about public transport and, you know, how much to invest in it because it's so expensive and it constantly needs to be subsidized. But it's the people who are the most vulnerable who, who need it. They're the ones who take the lowest paying jobs. Um, you know, they live the furthest away because they have to, because that's the that's the only place they can afford. So if we take away public transport, I don't know that that's really going to solve any problems. And I think it's going to make things worse in cities. It's going to make the social equity issue a lot worse. And the other alternative is if people aren't taking public transport, that I mean, many people will walk and cycle, but I do think there's also going to be an uptick in purchase of, of personal vehicles and, you know, in cars. Um, and that's obviously another worrying trend because we spent the last sort of <laughs> 20 to 30 years trying to convince people to get out of their cars. And uh, now because of COVID and this concern around social distancing, people are potentially going to go back to using their car because they think it's safer. And that would obviously bring back all the problems that we're aware of in terms of um, congestion emissions um, and all the health related issues with tailpipe emissions so it's sort of complicated so Marianne on that note um, we recently tweeted from the at moonshot city account about a BBC post that highlighted that the UK is lagging behind global cities like Paris Milan New York Bogota and Brussels in allocating roads to pedestrians and cyclists. And so the article said that in the UK, there's a risk of people turning to their cars rather than public transport after lockdown, which is exactly what you're saying. And also pointing out that in Wuhan, private car usage nearly doubled when lockdown ended. And I mentioned earlier that Aucklanders are notoriously attached to their cars. And I'm really concerned that we've missed the opportunity to fully pedestrianize the, the city centre, the CBD. So, yeah, do you, do you have any more thoughts yeah. about, about that? I do think cities that have moved the quickest to open up public space 
are going to have the most success in terms of encouraging people to appreciate the open space and possibly delay them, let's say, from buying a car. You know, the more options you feel like you have right outside your doorstep, and if in the time of social distancing, if that's just streets that are closed to cars or having more, like you say, more space for cyclists and pedestrians, you know, I think that's going to make people feel like they have more options and will encourage, you know, encourage people to use them. I think people who are buying cars, um, it may be because they feel like there is no other way for them to get around. I mean, I think another thing this brings up is how important it is for public transport authorities to have a contingency plan for how they're going to, um, you know, how they're going to ensure the public transport is safe. I mean, I guess right now in this, during this pandemic, it's really an issue of like, how thoroughly can you disinfect the interiors of these vehicles? And how can you ensure that the drivers and the maintenance crew and people who are working on them can be safe? And, you know, without having experienced something like this before, uh, necessarily at this scale, there are cities like Hong Kong that had SARS and the, the MTR system there was able to run. It definitely took a hit in terms of not running, you know, as frequently and definitely costing a lot to constantly disinfect the cars. But the MTR system definitely rebounded from the SARS crisis. And I'm hopeful that in other cities, the public transport systems will also be able to. It really will come down to uh, how much funding is made available to um, to support them in this time while there is really reduced you know, ridership, uh, which is going to impact their finances. But at the end of the day, I think you can't have a sustainable city without a good public transport system no matter how many cycles or e-bikes or scooters you have, you know, the backbone of mobility in a city is a really good public transport system that can move people en masse quickly and efficiently and with many options. And so it would be, yeah, it would be devastating for cities in this time to disinvest in their public transport systems. Marianne, what are some examples of cities that are leading in resilient transport? So there are not very many cities that I think are leading in terms of holistically resilient transport system, um, as what I had described before. There is definitely one that I'd like to bring up, but just to say that there are many, many examples of cities who are trying to implement different types of transport projects that will build resilience in a city. And I can definitely give you some examples of those. So the the city I'm thinking of and, and the transport authority that I think of as definitely being one of the most resilient would be Transport for London. And they are, you know, one of the largest multimodal transportation agencies in the world. And from what I understand, London's been thinking about resilience really since about the Olympic Games, the 2012 Olympic Games, uh, when they had to ensure that their transportation system was going to be prepared for the onslaught of tourists who are going to come to London, but also be prepared for risks such as terrorism and any operational failures that might happen. And so Transport for London really started to plan for and develop sort of standards um, that require 120-year design life that takes into consideration climate change and mitigation strategies across all uh, all the modes that it manages and TfL manages basically all the modes of transport within London, which is very unique. In, in many cities, it's a much more fragmented uh, governance structure. And I'd say that, you know, in addition to sort of the design standards and the considerations it takes, it definitely collects a lot of performance data on operations and maintenance and makes this available to the public. 
and and there's also from what i gather also a just a general cultural and organizational awareness of the importance of climate change adaptation and mitigation to all the work all the aspects of work of tfl which is also very unique um a lot of transportation agencies i think would think of climate change as outside their remit and not necessarily as integrated and so i'm not sure exactly how tfl is responding to the covid-19 but given how there is a a culture there of thinking about climate change risk at least and other sorts of crises i'm hopeful that they are equally in a sort of prepared mindset to face the the covid-19 pandemic and can you give us some examples of cities that are doing resilient transport projects cities that are looking at expanding their cycleways and also looking at ways to include bioswale or you know water catchment mechanisms to capture stormwater cities that have invested in these types of infrastructure will not only promote cycling and healthier lifestyles but also uh, provide a benefit in terms of capturing rainwater and slowing down any flooding issues or cities that for example when they're developing new bus shelters look at ways that bus shelters can disseminate useful information and potentially also information around emergency messages you know i think those types of projects are also resilient because they provide shelter for people who are waiting for the bus but they also can also be effective mechanisms for communicating uh, if there's any issues going on in the city at the time thank you so much marianne for giving us that overview of resilient cities and particularly the resilient transport systems of the future and i really liked how you were talking about the need to have not only hardware and software that can respond to resilience, but also a culture that can respond to the risks and challenges that we face today. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Marianne. That was fantastic. It was a really insightful discussion. And I think talking to you, it was very helpful to unpack how do we define resilience from a city point of view, from a transport point of view. So thanks heaps for joining us and sharing your insights with us today. Thank you both for having me. Uh, it was really interesting to be able to reflect on resilience and and especially resilient transport during these times. Thank you. Oh, good. So to learn more about the work that Marianne Zhang is doing, including a link to the white paper she authored on resilient transport, visit us at www.projectmoonshot.city and on Twitter at Moonshot City. I'm Juhi Sharif. I'm Preeti Ambani. This is Moonshot City.